0: From the Alexa in your kitchen to the smart TV in the bedroom, you've got smart devices peppered all over the house. So wouldn't it make sense to place the best tech in every part of your home? The Numi 2.0 is Kohler's most advanced toilet to date with a sculptural design that elevates it beyond a household object. With advanced technology to bring you the finest in personal comfort and cleansing, it offers personalized setting from ambient color lighting and built-in audio speaker system to a heated seat with hands-free opening and closing. It's more than a toilet. It's a work of art. Learn more at Kohler.com.
1: Support for this episode comes from eBay. Whether it's a holy grail pair of sneakers, head turning handbags, or one genuine wardrobe staple. If you're always on the hunt for that one wardrobe staple you just gotta have, eBay gets it. Nothing's more important than the real deal. When you shop on eBay, all you have to do is look out for that shiny blue check mark that says Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll know that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo will be verified authentic through a detailed inspection. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
2: So sorry. (laughs) I'm so sorry. That's
3: okay. (laughs) As you're just bit milky iced coffee all over me. So it's really good to have him back in the studio. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined today by Ezra Klein, who I guess in, in the new format, Ezra's now like a like an expert. <laughs> Is that right? Um, yeah. On the interview, I'm not I just think, a panelist th- I th- today. I think that's how it works. Ooh, yeah. um, that's great. technically. I mean I guess it's it's our show, so we can we can do it however <laughs> we want. Um but so okay. There's a lot of democratic debate lately. It was – I would say most of the commentary on this has been pretty horse racy. In some ways deservedly so because it was like 20 people up there. It is part of the
2: horse race. right?
3: But I mean also like it's just like a big question here in like a huge field of 20 people is like who will be like a real candidate later in the process who we really like dig deep in. But there was like some policy ground staked out and this is the weeds. A lot of policy ground staked out. And we want to talk about it. And I think – To me, the most striking thing was the very large number of Democrats who agreed with a Julian Castro proposal to repeal Section 1325 of, I guess, the Immigration Naturalization Act um, because both like Beto's refusal to agree to this was like – Everybody agreed, like a catastrophic moment for his candidacy, and then tons of people signed up for it. And this is like a completely unfamiliar policy topic.
2: that like, And a couple of days before the, the debate, Elizabeth Warren had
3: endorsed. Had it. Endorsed it, right? So but, what like, is it, Matt? But so, like two weeks ago, I had no idea. But okay, so since Irira, which we have talked about many times with Dara on this podcast, in, in the mid 1990s, the American government for the first time created a specific crime of entering the United States illegally. Right? So previously it had been that like it wasn't legal to enter illegally and that meant ver- various things followed from being present in the country without legal authorization. But there wasn't like a crime of it. Uh, but in 1996, this crime was created. It was against the civil code though. Right. I mean but in the in like the general sense that like to open a restaurant, you need to get a permit. Right. And so like if you don't have a permit, right. that's illegal. And like they'll shut your restaurant down. Right. right. But what this changed was that in addition to you could be deported because you weren't here illegally, there was also – You weren't like, here legally. Right. There's also now like a crime and they could prosecute you for the crime of illegal entry. This does not happen in practice an enormous amount, right? Like the standard deportation process is they deport you. They don't – Like the American government's goal is not to have unauthorized people in American jails, but it is an option that is available to prosecutors. And in particular, it was the – when we talk about like the family separation policy of the Trump administration, what was happening there on a technical basis is that at the – Authorized border crossings, they were doing metering, right? So they were saying like people can't come at the legal ports of entry and apply for asylum. So then people would cross the border between the points of entry and – try to make asylum claims there. And the Trump administration was saying, no, when you come across between the ports of entry, we are going to prosecute you for the crime of illegal entry. And then because you are being prosecuted for a crime, you go to pretrial detention. And then because you're in pretrial detention, we don't normally send children into jail. So you become separated from your parents. And so this has entered the discourse as family separation and – Almost everybody agrees that the family separation was horrifying and like the Trump administration backed down from it. So if you were to imagine Democrats standing up there putting their hands up being like, do you want to make sure that this family separation never happens again? Right. And all the Democrats held their hands up. Everyone would be like, that is an incredibly banal debate moment. I have rarely seen something so banal as <laughs> Democrats universally rejecting a Trump administration policy that was so hideously unpopular that Trump himself abandoned it within 36 hours. But. However, reframing it as we are going to decriminalize crossing the border, suddenly it's like a very unfamiliar and like – I don't want to say it's unpopular because it's so outlandish that as far as I know, nobody has ever pulled it. But like it it doesn't sound good and you're going to be up there with – Trump has been saying for years that the democratic position on immigration amounts to open borders. And what Castro proposed and Warren agreed to and then got everybody else to agree to, like it really isn't open Not everybody, we should say, yes, but But a number of candidates
2: on the two stages. And what's something I noticed in the second debate was that it was – there was even less dissension over it than in the first. Like people had watched Beto get his butt handed
3: to him on this and decided not to be in his position. That's what I was talking about. And and in particular, like Joe Biden, right? Yes. Like the electability candidate who knows that people on the left are going to complain about him no matter what he does – Right. Because like like people on the left don't want Joe Biden to be the nominee because Joe Biden is like not a diehard left winger. I had expected him to like spend 12 hours prepping on this so that unlike Beto, yes. he could make a, a defense of the position. He could say, Here, here's what my Joe Biden mind meld. I was waiting for it to be like, listen, I care about the interests of millions of long settled undocumented people in the United States. Me and Barack, like we fought for immigration reform. We fought to prioritize criminals. We fought for DACA. We fought for DAPA. Like this is like hard work, but it's— It's incredibly important and we've been driving at it for years and I think it would be incredibly irresponsible to the interests of those people to like completely derail this – quest in favor of elect, uh, I'll go a like unpopular and obscure. I thought Bernie Sanders, who has
2: the credibility on the left sometimes to not go where other candidates on the left go, might do the same thing. I mean, I've talked to Sanders about open borders and he he's, he's a borders guy. Bernie Sanders has, during his career, looked at immigration with some skepticism, feels it really cuts the wages of native-born workers, I mean, feels is... open borders is a Koch brothers plot. So my point is not that it was <laughs> yes. certain, but I thought both Biden and Sanders, for different reasons... Both that they're leading in the polls, but also that for different reasons they have the ability to stand up to some of these trends. They're not like a lower tier candidate trying to trying to jump a a, a couple levels in the in the debate. Might might say like no, like we're not actually going and there.
3: And I can also say as a journalist, this is like always like my worst nightmares because like I can imagine writing a billion fact checks and explainers like twelve to eighteen months from now about how like okay, but you can still be deported. Right. So like on the one hand it really isn't open. It's borders. not open borders. And on the other hand, like it's not that helpful to people, right? Like in the very specific context of this family separation thing, like the fact that this law was on the books made a big difference. But family separation was actually one of the rare instances. There were a lot of things where like Trump has found odd legal loopholes laying around like this Emergency Economic Powers Act and like national security tariffs on European cars and stuff and exploited the loopholes. And a lot of people have been like, whoa, that goes against the norms. Um, and family se- and family separation like that actually worked. Like, keep back yes. down, <laughs> so
2: okay, so let's let's put a pin in family separation because what uh, and and thirteen twenty five because I think we're I want to draw a kind of picture yeah. of an underlying dynamic of the debate. So then something that happens both nights is, I should say, the way the debate moderators approached the debate, and this was the first of the democratic debates was they did not want people to explain their policies. They were looking for like, the seams in the democratic arguments. like every every single question more or less was, hey, we know you support like liberal policies, but you dis- do you support the most unpopular part of every one of those policies? Not how does it – like what do you want to do on healthcare or how does Medicare for all work? But raise your hand if you want to abolish private insurance. And so night one, you have uh, importantly Warren raise her hand yep. alongside um, – It was
3: Warren and de Blasio.
2: Warren and De Blasio, and Warren raising her hand was important here because she has been holding. She does not have her own healthcare plan yet, right. and she's been holding to a. I like Bernie's plan. There are a lot of ways to get to Medicare for all. I'm I'm not going to like pin myself only to one, and that's been creating some frustration. Like Jacobin's been hitting her for it. I mean, there's been a, a sense of her being fuzzy in this places of, of of real important to liberals. But no, she like raises her hand, says healthcare is a basic human right. I fight for basic human rights. I wasn't shocked by this because in my interview with her about a a month ago, I had asked her about markets in healthcare and she said, nope, it just doesn't work there. Like healthcare is a basic human right. She's clearly beginning to work on this answer. But she – it felt to me that that week Warren's team looking at their polling had decided there's going to be no room to our left. Like there's going to be no space for Sanders on our left. Like we are going to take the abolished private insurance lane with him. We're going to endorse Julian Castro on 1325. Like there's going to be nowhere you can go right. on our left. Like that's not that's not going to be a vulnerability for us. So the second night then this comes up again and of course Sanders raises his hand on it and Kamala Harris raises her hand on it. Point is this ends up becoming a debate about abolishing private insurance. not really about Medicare for all but about this quite – Again, unpopular part of this otherwise quite popular policy, but then it gets taken a couple in a couple other directions. There's another one of these raise your hands if questions, which is healthcare for undocumented immigrants. Right. Which this is something Barack Obama very specifically wrote out of the Affordable Care Act. Um, Then there was that whole thing where Joe Wilson yelled during the the speech, you lie. And and, and there's been efforts on this. California has been looking for an Obamacare waiver for a a couple of years to try to uh, add undocumented immigrants to their plan. But every Democrat on the stage raises their hand on this. And I want to say for the record – I think this is obviously good policy. I think that, and Buttigieg in particular, by the way, tried to walk a line on it where he says, "Look, it doesn't." He basically said, "It doesn't mean they get subsidies, but of course they can buy in." Like undocumented immigrants, one are human beings; two are people who handle our food and care for our children and ride the bus with us. The idea that like disease cares about your citizenship papers is crazy. You don't want to catch anything. Like the whole thing is just like a, a weird, like I want to catch a flu to spite my face policy. But anyway, it's quite unpopular. Um, it's been like a third rail. And Healthcare for a long time in liberal policy circles, and every Democrat endorses it. This is then what Donald Trump tweets about after the debate, and then there's a moment where Bernie Sanders says, "And just to be clear, Medicare for All will, of course, pay for for abortions," which again I think is reasonable and, and actually good policy. It's what you see in other countries, but overall, what you saw was the Democratic field moving like quite far to the left uh, on a lot of policies, and then the candidates who didn't want to do that, like a Bennett, a Hickenlooper, a Delaney, they get no traction. Biden doesn't want to create space on his left. So he's not picking any of these fights. And so overall, like the whole field shifted in a direction of, I would say, opening a
3: lot of vulnerabilities for the general election. And I, well, yeah, so I agree with all that. I would also say just, I was surprised, like a thing that candidates often have done in debates in the past is attack the moderators. And I was surprised that you didn't see that there, right? Because I, I understand what the moderators are doing, right? Like we we are media personalities. Um, I have been known to like try to create entertainment in a discussion of politics, right? And so like essentially what they were doing for four hours across two nights was a series of like – shit tests for Democrats running for president, right? Like they were not trying to explore the nuances of Medicare for all. They were like very deliberately saying, OK, I am going to take the most unfavorable framings of policy issues and I'm going to put you in a difficult position of either embracing an unpopular framing of your own policy or else creating tension between you and Bernie Twitter. It's not like – I don't know. It's a moderator's prerogative to use their time that way if that's what they want. But like it's also the candidate's prerogative to like push – Back on that,
2: yep. right? Like, which Harris did a little bit, not in one of these raise your hand questions, but the first moment where you really saw like her command of the debate was she got the third question, right? And the first two were these same kind of like, how will you pay for it? And then it goes to to Harris, and it's like, how will you pay for all these like free calls? Yes, yes. And she says, you know, I didn't hear you all asking that question when Donald Trump was right. passing taxes for the top one percent. And it may not literally be true that MSNBC wasn't asking that question right. at that time, but it was a very
3: effective rhetorical But like, you move. could have said right in the second night, Harris could have said very genuinely, you know, I. I watched last night's debate. I watched one hour of the debate. Then I watched a second hour of the debate and then I watched one hour of this debate. I watch you guys ask no questions about what we are going to do to help millions of Americans who don't have health insurance. I watch you ask no questions about what you are going to do for millions of Americans who want to afford prescription drugs. No questions about what you want to do for senior citizens who struggle with Medicare gaps, right? I would like to tell people what I am going to do about all of that. What I am going to do about all of that is create a Medicare for all plan. care for all plan is going to have no premiums, it's going to have no deductibles, it's going to have no cost sharing. And like, yes, it is true that because you are going to be able to see any doctor in America with no deductible and no cost sharing, you are not going to buy a secondary – private insurance plan. To me, that is common sense. The way you phrased it is obviously designed to make me look bad. I get it, like, all's fair in love and war, but, like, honestly, I think what's important here is the millions of Americans who are struggling to afford health insurance, right? Like, the the, the immigration stuff, like, is a little different, but, like, on, on healthcare, like, Healthcare' is an important topic, right? Well, like this in
2: general, don't one thing care about this, a lot about it what one thing to be like media critic for a minute is that I think this made for a debate that was quite hard to follow for people because the narrator, the moderators were looking for narrow questions that would create these this kind of conflict. They were getting into things that were very complicated to follow. There was another one on the first night about would you restore the Iran deal exactly as it had been before, which is like a weird, like that's probably not on the table. You would have a new negotiation. So had Cory Booker say, "Well, like it's a good deal, but like of course it'll be a new Wait, negotiation." Like a much more normal like, question a, would be
3: like, "Like, w- what do you think about Iran?" Yeah,
2: right. And so there just wasn't a lot of that. And so for, you know, most people are not paying that much attention to the campaign. Like these debates are the first exposure. A lot of folks are going to get to the candidates. It's not a problem, I think. To at some point, try to like explore the divisions between them. But for the only thing you do to be exploring the divisions between them, I think both is is it just makes it hard to follow debate, even aside from everything else, because you end up in these very technical parts of the uh, of the answers. That said one thing you saw underneath the debate was a real feeling that the only way to win in the Democratic Party right now is to is to move pretty hard to the left. And something that's interesting about that is that given Biden's like continued um, mm-hmm. position on top of the field, we've not seen obviously post-debate polling, but he has held it for quite some time. It's not really obvious that's true, right? The whole thing is holding on Bernie Sanders's ground, but whether or not like Bernie Sanders or Barack Obama understood the Democratic Party better. is interesting. And Obama, if you go back to 08, um, much like Clinton and others, like – very much had a view that there were limits on what the population would accept from Democrats, right? Obama always was somebody who had a sense that if you go too far, you're going to lose, like, voters in the middle. And so he would try to not go too far. I mean he, you know, <laughs> at least in the the campaign, you know, wouldn't support the individual mandate. He did not have a single-payer health care plan bill. He was somebody who I think to his discredit at this point but nevertheless really pushed for uh, a border security and deportations approach on immigration to build – credibility that would then get you um, a, a comprehensive deal. Now, some of what you're seeing reflects a sense that that kind of politics has failed. And I think it's an interesting di- dynamic within at least elite circles in the Democratic Party. But nevertheless, it's created a, a push that I think is is pretty profound um, to the left. And we don't really know how that will play out. And we also don't know how much the policies that they are taking are going to be held to.
3: Here's where I want to complain about Joe Biden. Right. Because... There is clearly – like it is just not true that the Democratic Party is composed at its rank-and-file level of hard-left ideologues, right? And like we see time and again, right? When Andrew Cuomo ran against Cynthia Nixon in New York in a you know liberal blue state, like he won handily against her, right, when Dianne Feinstein got a challenge from the left from – I'm forgetting his name – the Uh, state senate president, right? But it was was important there because her challenger was the president of the California state senate, like not the star of six in the city, right, a totally credible left-wing challenger and he lost, like again, pretty badly in, in a blue state, right? You have insurgent wins, right? AOC won in Queens. Uh, this woman won uh, – Caban won this Queens DA race. Anna Presley in Massachusetts. Yeah, Anna Presley. So, you know, left wins in in certain places, but it's very common for more – Like Abdul al sayed did right. not win in Michigan, exactly. like even the Democratic primary. Exactly, exactly. So it's, it's very common for more moderate Democrats to win a primary, right? Biden is in a weird meso position. As a candidate, which is as former vice president of the United States, he is such a strong contender that he sucks up the support of a very large number of people who would be inclined to support a more moderate Democrat. But at the same time, he's like 117 years old. He is embroiled in like – not like an unwillingness to provide free abortions for illegal immigrants but like controversies about working with segregationists in the 1970s and he's not a as strong i think potentially a face for that kind of politics as some of the other people in the field but it's really really hard right like the candidates who are more left-wing than biden can like take him on but it's very challenging for amy klobuchar to just like make the argument that like You should just have me stand up for these positions but like be a younger person with a more modern sensibility about the world and like less weird nostalgia for the 70s. And it would be healthier I think to to have that because there's a bunch of people like not unreasonable candidates like Hickenlooper, Klobuchar, Michael Bennett. But I think this is literally what Buttigieg is doing. I think an interesting thing about
2: Buttigieg is he really doesn't get into this competition. So he doesn't do the Medicare for all abolish private insurance. Like his view is like I am a younger person who is like more inspiring, who is sort of a mainstream Obama-style Democrat. And um, you should vote for me. And I, I was actually struck by the degree to which he didn't try to sort of move to anybody's left on policy. I thought he did a nice job in the debates and he's – but I think he's like coming in a slightly weak position now given the the, the, the shooting in South Bend. But I was really struck um, by – I think of everybody, he is in a way making the most direct play for Biden's lane. Yeah, um, by sort of like running an Obama 08 candidacy himself, I I don't think he is he is, he is not Obama. I think you'd have a lot of trouble putting together that, that coalition. But I do think it's notable that when these things come up, even in the uh, healthcare for undocumented immigrants, a question went to him, and he walked it back. Right, he said. Yeah, but it's not like they're gonna like get covered through subsidies.
3: They could just buy in. But here's what's interesting, because so I sat down with some people to talk about how how they in in polling terms are seeing what's what's going on here. And demographically, right, conceptually, it feels like Warren and Sanders are playing in the same place, and that maybe Buttigieg and Biden are. But in terms of voting base, it's like Warren and Buttigieg have the same voters, right? There's incredible fluidity between super Warren supporters and, and Buttigieg supporters. And I was told in particular that, like, Buttigieg supporters are the most uh, keyed in people. So there was incredible overrepresentation of Buttigieg fans in the audience for the first debate, right, Like which he wasn't in. And they were super impressed with Elizabeth Warren, huh? right, because, like, he wasn't there, right? And, and there's also, like— it, People don't, I think, know this, but there's like incredibly dense like interpersonal network ties between Warren and Buttigieg. Yes, which has created incredibly dense interpersonal stuff enmity. <laughs> yes, I mean, and, and it's, it's it's problematic in a way. But so like sociologically, like Warrenism and Buttigiegism are very, very similar. Yes, And by the same token, Sanders and Biden both have much more of a uh, working class constituency. And at this point... Bernie over-indexes on African-American support, which is different from how it was in 2016. I mean his overall support is lower, right? But what Bernie has mostly lost since 2016 is white voters and he has made some gains with African-Americans as he's become like a better known, more seen as like a Democratic Party type presence. So it's a bit of a curious thing. Like I think we all know that like – Voters don't really vote on policy. But like the candidates really are talking like a lot about policy mm-hmm. seemingly in the hopes of winning votes. That that in itself like is – like it's its own strange dynamic because I'm not really sure what anyone is accomplishing out there. And it's, it's striking to me too like how many issues have gone off the stage In a kind of odd way, like almost nobody like talked about how like Donald Trump is a bad president or but wait, let's let's take a break and then come back and
2: talk about this in a slightly more like rigorous way.
3: Okay.
4: Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information, where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot, even if you're listening to The Weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital-I informed, it can help define and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. I love hosting people, so I know that having family or friends stay the night might seem like a great idea until you find yourself scrambling for extra cushions. Or worse, scrounging up an air mattress only to realize it has a hole in it. Well, you won't need to worry about any of that with Burrow's new shift sleeper sofa. Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa can make your guests feel at home. It's an everyday sofa that easily converts into a queen-size bed that they say comfortably sleeps two people. The Shift Sleeper Sofa has layers of memory foam, therapeutic comfort foam, and a supportive core foam to provide an amazing night's sleep for your guests. And like all of Burroughs' furniture, it's a breeze to get in your home with a painless online shopping experience and free shipping to your door. You can check out Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa and all their furniture at burrow.com slash weeds and get 15% off your Burrow order when you do. That's burrow.com slash weeds for 15% off your Burrow purchase. com slash weeds.
2: I think we should just go through some of the candidates on their own and, and just talk about sort of what they did in the debate. Pretty some of the, the top tier ones. And I want to start yeah. here with Kamala Harris who is far and away, I think, the breakout star from the debates. Yeah, I think that it's important to, to get the backdrop of Harris. I don't think I've ever seen a politician trajectory quite like hers in the sense that – the Democratic Party has a lot of internal schism. It has Bernie voters who don't like sort of the Democratic establishment. It has uh, Hillary Clinton voters who don't like Bernie Sanders. It has Obama administration people who don't like Elizabeth Warren. It has you know, folks from a, a younger and more diverse party who don't want to be represented by an old white man. It's got all of these things inside a, a quite diverse coalition that make it somewhat hard to hold together. And the thing about Harris has been she's quite new on the national scene And it's like if you had created a candidate in a lab who maybe could hold this together, she's the sort of candidate you would create. But – Candidates who look good on paper often don't perform well under the lights. And so there's been this burbling question. There are a lot of parts of the party that want to embrace Harris, um, but there's been this like, can she do it question around her, right? Mm -hmm. There's nobody seen that much of her. She does a nice job in, you know, Senate hearings, but she's only been in so many of them, having only been in the Senate for a couple of years, but she didn't have like the Obama 2004 DNC speech, right? Nobody quite knows how she can perform. And in this debate – like she just walked in and owned it. Yeah, and, she's a killer. And she in particular did something, I think, really sharp, which is she walked in and she took apart Joe Biden. Now, usually people don't go, particularly in that those upper tiers of the campaign, they don't really go negative quite this early because, you know, why, why risk it? But what she kind of did was she took on Joe Biden in a way that was the real message of it, I thought, was if I can do this to him, look what I could do to Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Like can't you imagine me? in the debate with Donald Trump, taking apart that old white guy too. Yeah. And what she like, it was a very, very effective attack on Biden, sort of using busing and using her own personal experience. Um, it both sort of like offered a sort of note about who she is and what she has come through and what she can speak to. And also it exposed a lot of weakness on Joe Biden's part, not just weakness in terms of he's got old positions to answer for, but weakness in that he's not prepared to answer for them, right? What she also exposed was just a preparatory and performative weakness on Biden's part. We'll see if it matters in the polls. Oftentimes these things don't matter as much as you think they will. But In terms of sort of like elite, like how is Joe Biden going to perform? Is his age going to show? Like, you know, is he going to be able to kind of knock this stuff back? He took a lot of questions that were there and opened them quite a bit further. And so what you have right now is I think a lot of candidates who clearly could represent a faction of the party. But Harris has always been like the part, like the candidate you would imagine being a party decides candidate, the, the candidate that a lot of different groups could agree on. If only she could show them that she could bear that weight. And she began showing that she could bear that weight, I think.
3: I agree with all that. I just – to issue a note of dissent in a day where I think most of the coverage is like extremely pro-Kamala, I think a lot of the electability worries that have been in the neighborhood of Elizabeth Warren like really should – apply to Kamala Harris, right? Like when you were talking about like Harris as a Democratic coalitional candidate, like that's all correct and I think almost like catastrophically so that it's like you need to imagine a person who is not strongly identified with the Democratic Party, who are they going to want to vote for? In a general election, well, do you or do you
2: need to amount? I mean, going back, there's a theory that you have to win the white working class, but also, if Hillary Clinton had had Obama's turnout among African Americans, he would have won.
3: Yes, and if or you th- she would have won. I'm sorry that that would be a case for Harris if you think that she will deliver that. Whatever, I I don't want to like rule it out, but like Harris had kind of like gone out of the top tier and therefore didn't get that kind of elevated scrutiny that that people do get there. But like, you know, she's been in California politics. Her big Joe Biden takedown was like it was about race. Right. Mm -hmm. And she is not right. Like Obama was the black politician who spent all this time telling white people about how he wasn't like one of those black politicians. Right. And like Harris is not done that. I got to see. You know what I I mean? I think an interesting thing about Harris that we'll see how she plays it. One thing we
2: were talking about with Biden earlier was that he, as of yet, is not – he's not kind of holding the line on some of the things you might expect him to hold the line on. Something that's been striking to me about her is that she actually – is yes she's gotten a lot of scrutiny about her prosecutorial record yes where she is a democrat who is still from a period of time she frames herself as a progressive prosecutor which in many ways she was but also prosecutors yes. she, are tougher on and crime she does and, hold to the view that crime is bad yeah, and but, that it's in
3: fact good to arrest criminals and, which i always appreciate and
2: and so i we'll see my, my point yeah. is not that like harris will definitely win in 2020 yeah, yeah, yeah. my point is more that coming out of this i think it reshuffled. The sense of like, what is that top? Like Biden looks a lot weaker, and Harris, who I would say was in, I think that uh, it's Nate Silver who's had these sort of weird tiers. Just like she the, was like,
3: in like tier two B, yeah, I like think. Like it's very...
2: But I think it like it's a
3: jump up, right? Yeah. She's now like I, w- I would say maybe two A or one B. Or I something. also I want to say something <laughs> pro Harris, which is that I have found because I've often been annoyed about the other candidates on this score that like Harris seems to give the most thought to the literal question of what she would do as president. Like she has this like maybe illegal gun control idea. Um, Her signature legislation is like well crafted to qualify for budget reconciliation treatment. It's a big income tax credit increase. Rather than like asserting that she's going to end filibusters or something, she's like thinking about the actual problems, which I I do find good. Also,
2: I want to know one other thing on her because we were talking about the Medicare stuff earlier. And Harris, um, the thing that happened initially when she came into the the, the campaign in the CNN town halls and by the way, the debates kind of make me nostalgic for the CNN town sure. halls with their, with their depth um, is that you know she got kind of tied up in this abolished private insurance thing and then she kind of walked that back over time. Then it looked like last night she had like gone like way back into it and then she got another question where she, the, the question about this was quite unusually phrased. Yep. And so she says that like the way she interpreted it was would you give up your own insurance right. for this? She actually may still be holding to the try to like fuzz the sides of this a little bit, um, which I I actually don't think would be an unwise strategy. Yeah.
3: So, okay. So, I want to talk about Bernie Sanders. I feel like I am one of the only people in America who is warmer to the Bernie 2020 campaign than I was to the Bernie 2016 campaign. Oh, I definitely feel that way. Okay. It frustrates me that I don't feel like he's like trying to win the election. I don't understand what's, like, going on out there because a lot of these other candidates, right? You know, you're talking about, like, Pete Buttigieg. He's a huge star. That means he's polling at 8%, right? So, like, a good performance for for Mayor Pete is, like, get to 11%, right? You have other people out there. Like, nobody knows who the fuck Jay Inslee is, right? So he's just, like, trying to get attention, right? But everybody knows who Bernie Sanders is, right? He's been out there for a long time. He ran a strong campaign in 2016. He got a lot of people to vote for him, but it was not enough people to win the election. So now what he has to do is like not literally repeat himself time and again, but like address arguments that are relevant to voters in 2020 who are not currently supporting him. And like I would love to hear him say explicitly – For example, that like one good thing about Bernie Sanders is that yes, it is true that some of his economic policy ideas, the media finds kooky. But one nice thing about that is it means that with Bernie Sanders, you get a debate about the concrete material interests of the American people rather than about, like, Donald Trump's, like, racist circus. He kind of said that, I would say.
4: I've, I just, like
3: I, – he, I, I, he gave an answer
2: on the, on the debate field where he just said, yeah, the way we win against Donald Trump is we expose him for a fraud on economics in a way that has not been done yet. I think the difficulty Bernie Sanders had up there last night – and I'll say, like you, I'm much warmer to him, but, but on concrete things, one – I think in 2016, Bernie Sanders is actually a politician I've always liked. I've covered him for a long time. Like like I think you, like I have a reputation of being hard on him and I am I try to be tough on candidates' um, plans when they're uh, a, a little wan. But I've always liked him as a politician because he's always said a lot of interesting things. Mm-hmm. And as a presidential candidate, then you have this sort of like different level of scrutiny. Like right. how do you run your policy sure, process? Sure. What kind of staff do you attract? Since 2016, he's pulled in a lot of really strong staff. Mm-hmm. He's really stepped up his game on foreign policy right. in a way that I actually think separates him from the rest of the field in an important way. Yes. And he's like tightened a lot of the policies that he was running on. So I think there's a lot to be said there. The thing about the the two nights of debates, it was really striking. Bernie Sanders' ideas won those debates. I mean they set the terms of the whole conversation. Yeah. I mean that was yeah, true yeah, yeah. on free college. It was true on, 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 on Medicare for all. The way Bernie Sanders distinguishes himself and distinguishes himself in 2016 was that he's the only guy who supports these like kooky left-wing ideas. But now that they're not kooky left-wing ideas, now that every candidate has either adopted them or has adopted some kind of like weaponized counterattack, it's much harder for him to distinguish himself. So he's actually left like trying to stand out on on style and approach and like calls for political revolution. And he just had a lot more trouble um, having already set the terms of the debate he had like for his ideas, he had trouble resetting it for him. It's like oftentimes it seemed like Kamala Harris was winning a debate over Bernie Sanders' ideas with Bernie Sanders like standing over there on the stage or the same thing was true in, in, in different with Elizabeth Warren. The,
3: the foreign policy piece though is important because like unlike all this other stuff they talk about, like this is what the president actually he he does. he nailed
2: Joe Biden on that, I thought. Yeah. No, no, no. Like, that, that was, was his good. best
3: moment of the debate by yes, far. Yes. No, no, no. I agree with that. And It's weird that this like Biden takedown happened over this like somewhat obscure 1970s busing incident because like the foreign policy to me seems like Joe Biden's – like on the merits. Like this is what gives me pause about Joe Biden, which is that like I covered not like Prehistoric Joe Biden, but like modern day Joe Biden, Vice President Joe Biden, Chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee Joe Biden, and you know, like, he, like he's a nice guy. He's smart. He knows a lot of world leaders. But uh, when questions would arise that prominent Democrats disagreed about, right? Like more often than not, Joe Biden was on the wrong side of that disagreement. Like the Nancy Pelosi chaired the Intelligence Committee. And Joe Biden chaired the Foreign Relations Committee. Nancy Pelosi, as a chair of a relevant committee, decided that George W. Bush was on the wrong track. Joe Biden decided he was on the right track, right? Biden came out with this plan at some point that like the only possible solution was to partition Iraq, right? And like that wasn't right. Um, Biden Biden was right, I think— Inside the Obama administration's debate about the Afghanistan yes, surge, it's that. not like a cartoon who's like like blundering at every step of the way. So like he was right on that one, but I think he was for the Libya intervention, which which I, I don't agree with. He
2: was against, if I remember
3: the, the, um, bin, Laden oh, the raid. bin Laden raid. <laughs> right. So like. I don't know. He was man. also
2: inside internal Obama administration. This is all foreign policy, but he was against doing Obamacare right. at least at that scale.
3: So like I have no idea whether Cory Booker would make good foreign policy decisions under pressure. I've never heard him address the topic, but like we Biden has like an extensive track record of this and like it's worse than coin flipping. But and I don't that's but not the great. other p-
2: his answer on this. So he got this question from Rachel Maddow mm-hmm. basically, having been on the wrong side of, right. of Iraq, why should we trust your foreign policy views? His answer to me was his by far worst moment of the debate. I don't know that it will be his most damaging, but it was the one that revealed the most weakness. Right, it didn't make any sense. So first, it didn't make any sense. He had to know this was coming. Like this is the obvious question to ask Joe Biden. Um, It's also come up before, right? (laughs) Like it came up up in 2008. It's come up since then. What he said was – he kind of like hitched a little bit at the beginning. It was hard to like follow. But what he then said was – After George W. Bush like abused the power I gave him or helped to give him, um, I was elected with Obama and Obama turned to me and he said, Joe, you need to pull the troops out of Iraq and then I pulled them including my son, 150,000 troops out of Iraq. And so a few things on this. One, this thing that Biden is doing, which I, I do get the politics of where it's like the way the Obama administration worked was Obama had a thing you want to do. He's like, Joe, you do it. And then every time Joe just like personally like drove everybody. That's not true. Like that's not how any of this worked. But the second thing is the theory of the Joe Biden candidacy is that he is a successor to Obama's presidency. And to be that successor, the thing that you want to do is be the person on the stage who reflects Obama's thinking best, right? Like you had Obama as president. You would like to have him as as president again. Like Joe Biden is your next best thing. Mm -hmm. Joe Biden's not doing that. He didn't give an answer that said, you know— I think Barack Obama was right about this, and I was wrong. And what I learned from that is that, you know, blah, 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 blah. Whatever it might have been, is a theory of foreign policy and a theory of measuring intervention in 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 other countries. He's not running as Obama too. He's running with Obama as a shield. What? He's not the guy on the stage who sounds like Barack Obama. That's probably Pete Buttigieg or something. It's maybe in some ways Kamala Harris. Like he's running. As the guy who like hides behind Barack Obama and that's subtly different. Like for a little – you hear it the first four times. You're like, yeah, that's smart. Like Joe Biden is like defending Obama or like mentioning that he worked with Obama and then you realize that at no point is he actually really echoing Obama. He's just sort of using it as a, a protective device. And I don't think that's going to wear well. Like he actually either needs a good argument of his own or he needs Obama's good arguments. But this thing where he's like, my bad arguments don't matter because I served behind somebody. like That's a really good case for electing Barack Obama, but it's not a very good case for
3: electing Joe Biden. Well, and I do think I, I will be interested to see whether anybody ever puts this point more squarely because like I, I've talked to a number of older working class people, Democrats like Joe Biden, and they always cite this like Obama thing. And, and I feel like it reflects on their part a not super attentive person's understanding of what the role of vice president is, right? And so like Biden was a ticket balancing pick. Yes. Right? Now like Obama, He's a foil. Oh, Obama likes Joe Biden. Obama's team respects Joe Biden. They think he made valuable contributions to their team. But it was a complimentary pieces selection, like deliberately, right? It was an effort to show that like Barack Obama is not alarmingly woke, that like he will hang out with this like gaff-prone older white guy from Pennsylvania, right? Like it wasn't like here's my double, Right, Right. It wasn't a Clinton Al Gore pick. Right. It wasn't if you love Barack Obama, you will also love Joe Biden. It was actually if you have serious doubts about Barack Obama, you will find Joe Biden reassuring. Yes. And it worked. Like it was a good pick. Like it was – it made the Obama ticket stronger and it arguably made the Obama administration stronger. But what is not true is that if you are a Barack Obama superfan – you should draw from that the conclusion that like Joe Biden is the next best thing. It's like, it's it's literally the opposite of that, yes. right? It's that like, you wouldn't run an Obama booker ticket because that would be pointless. And this is why
2: in 2016, the Obama world did not co- cohere around Biden. I mean, I did reporting on this and was always, frustrated, I didn't get to use a piece because Biden like firmly dropped out before right. I could publish. But I had talked to a bunch of people in Obama world to ask, why isn't there any support mm-hmm. behind mm-hmm. Joe Biden? Like, why don't I like Hillary Clinton is not that strong? Like, why don't I hear anybody sort of pushing him in or just anything? Like, he's a well liked vice president. Like, what 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 happened there? And what I heard kind of again and again was, we love Joe Biden. Like, Joe's great, but the thing is, you don't really want him running the meetings.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You want him in the meetings. Yeah but if you like obama's cool technocratic managerially disciplined style super empirical that's just not how biden operates and so people who were attracted to obama were not then naturally attracted to the idea of joe biden being president they really like joe biden but To your point, he's a foil. And he's not just a foil in his public image. He's a foil in how he operates. He's a foil in how he makes decisions. He's a foil in how he runs a meeting. Obama's like disciplined and things end on time, like Joe Biden's endless bull sessions. Like it went pretty deep. And so now I think there's a little bit more, both for some views about electability and some views, you know, something about uh, the kind of Sanders and some even Warren like fights with the Obama world is that a lot of people who are around Obama and like have now paid their dues in the Democratic Party and want like that next position in the White House, if – Sanders and to a lesser but still very real potential extent Warren get the get the nod, they don't get it. And so I think there actually is a little bit more circling around Joe Biden because like that's more restoration. Although again, somebody like Kamala Harris could interrupt that. But there isn't a circling around him in the sense of look, I served with Barack Obama. Like this is the next best thing. Like that's not the argument. Right. Can we talk let's, about Elizabeth Warren? Well, let's take another
0: break. Okay. And then do it. We all need an upgrade every once in a while. Whether it's that outdated car in your garage or that cell phone that you bought over three years ago, it's good to have the best technology around. And great news, because now you can have the most advanced technology in the privacy of your own home. The Numi 2.0 is Kohler's most advanced toilet to date with a sculptural design that elevates it beyond a household object. The smart toilet combines unmatched aesthetics with cutting-edge technology to bring you the finest in personal comfort and cleansing. It offers personalized settings that let you fine tune every option to your exact preferences. From ambient colored lighting and a built-in audio speaker system to the heated seat with hands-free opening and closing. Plus, the NUMI 2.0 comes equipped with power saver mode for energy efficiency and emergency flush for power outages. So you don't have to worry about wasted energy. Connecting you to an oasis of cleanliness and comfort, the NUMI 2.0 can revolutionize your bathroom, making it more than a toilet. It's a work of art, Learn more at Kohler.com.
1: Support for this episode comes from eBay. Whether it's a holy grail pair of sneakers, head turning handbags, or one genuine wardrobe staple. If you're always on the hunt for that one wardrobe staple you just gotta have, eBay gets it. Nothing's more important than the real deal. When you shop on eBay, all you have to do is look out for that shiny blue check mark that says Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll know that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo will be verified authentic through a detailed inspection. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
2: So, night one... It, just, it had a lot less electricity because it didn't have all of these, like, you know, top-tier players. But but Warren was really the, like, the th- the, the candidate, everything we've all done. Yep. I'm curious what your impressions were. You
3: know, I thought that, like, Warren has been on the rise. And then I thought Warren delivered, like, a very poised, very competent, like, skillful performance. I know some people are wigged out by her endorsing of the healthcare thing. But I thought that, like, tactically, it's 100% correct for her to not get into a fight with Bernie Sanders' people about this. She is clearly she, – she is not actually appealing to Bernie Sanders' voters, but I think she is trying to appeal to Bernie Sanders. She is looking forward to a potential future scenario in which she gets ahead of him in the polls and he drops out and endorses her, which from a like issues standpoint would advance his kind of policy topics and, you know, she just showed that like she is skillful up there. There's an Elizabeth Warren duality, right? And there's one Elizabeth Warren who was up there on the stage and who generated a lot of internet memes from the most diehard Hillary Clinton loving people who I know, right, which is just appealing to an axis of accomplished professional woman competency there's like an identity politics around that, mm-hmm. that like both Hillary and Warren are like, like really good at their jobs, right? And that that I think clearly has um, an appeal to like a, a certain kind of person, right, who, who, who looks up to that and wants to see the kind of diligence that they both exhibit rewarded in a
2: generalized sense i also like seeing people who are good at their
3: jobs and somewhat some crave that in politics right now not me i i, I like the, the you know the sloppy messes but i can't emphasize enough that like well they're kind of similar people and they inspire similar uh devotion in their staffs and things like that like hillary clinton and Elizabeth warren have very different like ideas about yes. public policy and i do think they should take that somewhat seriously uh particularly because warren's uh operation is so policy oriented like she really is very diligent she really is very competent Um, and she has like a you know like a like a kind of vast team of like grim ideologues drawn from america's law school faculties who she wants to install in in positions of power and like it it doesn't reflect poorly on her but like it should be taken wait say what, what what are you saying here exactly like what's your takeaway on
2: this i mean obviously she is more liberal than hillary clinton i have views on how they differ but i feel like you're saying something
3: that i'm not quite Hearing. I think a lot of people who just like really uh, like hate Bernie Sanders have like hopped on the Warren bandwagon to like excise their like emotional angst about the 2016 primary and like they should think about like like do they actually agree with Elizabeth Warren? Like I think a really good reason to vote for Elizabeth Warren is like do you want her policy agenda? It's become like a like a meme. Like Warren has so many plans, but like have you so read let me, those let me plans? Take the I don't think
2: I agree with this on a couple levels. So let me say it two ways. One, I do think that the to, – to take your side to this for a minute, the plans thing feels like a quite false analogy to me between Warren and Clinton. Not just because the plans differ yeah. but because
3: Hillary Warren's Clinton, plans
2: reflect a totalizing worldview. Yes, Hillary's is, Hillary's is like
3: I talked to some guy yesterday.
2: <laughs> Hillary Clinton had a plan for everything. And that meant she had literally as many messages as she had plans. Like Mm -hmm. she would come into every single issue, like look at it, like come up with some plan that could plausibly pass into the system that you could imagine. Mm -hmm. And like, there you go, right? This is what the experts told her to do. And so like nothing ever cohered into a singular message. Elizabeth Warren is a very talented technocratic like thinker, but she's an anti-system thinker, not a pro-system thinker. and. All of – she's more than she's a talented policymaker. She's an incredibly like best-of-class generationally capable talented policy communicator. Yep. And like that's how she came out of nowhere to create the CFPB and then win a Senate seat in Massachusetts and now yep. be one of the leading candidates for the, for the Democratic nomination for the presidency. And behind that, Elizabeth Warren has a lot of plans and they all basically say the same thing. They all say – wealthy people have too much money and opportunity and power and she is going to redistribute those concentrations of economic power and opportunity and spread them around more widely. Yep. And like whether you are – like that is why her wealth tax and all the things it will buy is at the very center of her of her identity. I really would encourage people to listen to her uh, interview on my show on that or you can find it in the Weeds feed too. She talks a lot about that there and I think you can see exactly how she how she frames that. But over and over again, like what she's able to do is she has a lot of plans that reinforce one message. Not a lot of plans to create a lot of different messages. Yep. Um, and so in that way, I think the feeling I what I see is a lot of people fearfully comparing Warren and Clinton. Like Clinton had plans too. Clinton was the best prepared too. Yep. But uh, putting aside the fact that like Clinton basically performed as a banal Democrat and won you know yep. three million yep. more votes and and all of that. Warren is offering a message through her plans about what she would do to change the system. And Hillary Clinton just had a lot of plans that reflected her, like, status as a policymaker within the system. Yep.
3: It's pretty different. Yes. No, I think we are 100% in agreement. Your version of this is, like, if you are terrified that Elizabeth Warren is Hillary Clinton 2.0, like, relax. She's actually quite different. Yes. My version of this is, like, if you are thrilled that Elizabeth Warren is Hillary Clinton 2.0, like – Pay closer attention because
2: they're actually quite different. But but do you think there are that many people who – see, I think my interpretation of the the Hillary Clinton thing here is that a lot of people liked Clinton's preparation and competence and so on and actually didn't really like – the, the the ways in which she was bounded by her life within the system and so the the people who like the symmetry between them warren is fixing a problem they had with clinton more often than she is creating a problem they didn't like i i hear what you're saying that like warren is a is a strong shift to the left from hillary clinton um at least in a number of areas although i think probably not every area but i don't know that those are the parts of hillary clinton that people wanted to preserve
3: One thing Warren says in all her speeches and stuff is that, like, we need big structural change in America, right? And I don't know, talking to people who are mad about Donald Trump, like, do they think we need big structural change in America or do they think we need Donald Trump to not be the president? You know what I mean? Yeah. Because, like, Warren really – like, she sincerely believes that we need big structural change in America. And now, obviously nobody is going to stand up there and be like – Eh, not that much is going to change, but Donald Trump won't be president. But I think if you look at Pete Buttigieg, right, who – because again, they have demographically similar supporters, but I, I think actually different things going on, right? That like what Mayor Pete is saying is that like I'm like you, Weed's listener. Like I am an intelligent, thoughtful person who tries to pay attention to what's going on and just say things that make sense, right? And that is a big personality contrast with Donald Trump. And then if you listen to Pete on like a variety of topics, like he has thoughtful answers to these questions. He does not have like a vast totalizing worldview or like an agenda for sweeping systematic change. He's like the kind of guy who might be a good mayor of your city, right? Which is like a job where as mayor, it's like you take over, right? And then just like stuff happens and you try to deal with it competently right whereas donald trump is president like he takes over and like nothing's happening and then he's just like throwing things all over the room right and like it's crazy and it's chaos and i think there's like like warren's structural change message like that makes sense i can see why you might want that but i think you also might just want like competent managerialism and just say like no change in any area of public policy like the minimum wage has not been raised for 15 years like that that should be raised, right? But, like, is the big problem with America that, like, we need to, like, take these PDFs Warren has put out about, like, all the corporate executives who deserve to be in prison? <laughs> or is the problem that Donald Trump is president? Because there's, like, a big difference between, like, imprisoning a vast swath of corporate executives and just kicking Donald Trump out of the White House. And I just feel like the, like, Warren discourse, it's, like, very, like— Hooray, she has a plan for that. But it's like, what is the plan? Like, do you agree with that plan? Like, is this that, really that a is good fair. idea?
2: And listeners should read her plans and look into their hearts. I do want to note one thing about her plans, because I think something that is interesting about Warren is where she doesn't have a plan. Healthcare. And well, two things, right? So immigration and healthcare. Yeah. It is in the places where she does not have a specific plan that she has adopted her like most unpopularly left wing views. Um I would mm. say. Uh, At least of the things I know, basically Elizabeth Warren is extremely good at releasing plans that if you pull them, they – should pull well. Free college doesn't pull as well as I would have thought, so that's not a hundred percent true. But I think that's been a, certainly to me a bit of a surprise. The reason I bring this up is that it's clearly not the case that Elizabeth Warren doesn't have the staffing, the personal inclination, yes. or the personal capacity to create a healthcare plan of her own or yes. an immigration plan of her own. And so it seems to me like like my kind of galaxy brain on this, if that's the right level of brain, maybe it's not. Is it what she is doing? Is it in endorsing other people's ideas here she's not leaving any room for them to get around her because like Bernie Sanders can't say like the big difference between me and Elizabeth Warren is healthcare because like Elizabeth yes, I
3: think if she wins if she wins if then, she wins, she then
2: she's gonna have the Elizabeth Warren healthcare plan or the Elizabeth Warren immigration plan where maybe it doesn't have section 1325 but it replaces section 1325 with another section that does something else so that's not literally decriminalizing border crossing but it is changing how it is I don't know. But I just, I just think that is an interesting like question mark here. Yes. Because she releases so many plans, not releasing a plan is a very distinct choice. Yes. And why she is making that choice is worthy of some interrogation.
3: Yes. No, I agree with that and especially because – right. I mean if you think about these two topic areas, I mean you signal them out as like areas where she did politically dicey hand raising. But it's like healthcare is the top issue priority yes. for Democrats. <laughs> Right. And immigration is like the emotional centerpiece of Trump era politics. Yes. So those are like some odd lacunae, right? <laughs> um to just kind of like miss out on. And if you look at some of the other candidates, right, like those a detailed breakup Amazon plan, but healthcare, you know, right. but Bernie Sanders has some good ideas. So if you look at like Castro and O'Rourke, right, who both have like released a few plans, but not that comprehensively, like they both have immigration plans. Because yes. they've like see that as an important area to like put out a flag on, right, where it's like obviously it has not escaped Elizabeth Warren's attention that people are arguing a lot about immigration policy, right? She is waiting to come up with something um, and I hope, you know, she comes up with with something good on it. I want to say about immigration, beyond the like four corners of this 1325 thing, I found the way all of the Democrats talked about immigration up there to be a little bit problematic, the people who vote in elections are American citizens. And so when you talk about your education plan, you're talking about how the plan will help Americans, right? When you talk about your healthcare plan, you talk about how it will help Americans. And when you talk about your immigration plan, like I, I am very pro-immigrant. Like I think America should have like a generous, kind, humane, welcoming immigration policy. But like I think that because I think that's like good for Americans. It's like not just a question of abstract benevolence. And like there's a reason why we don't have long debate exchanges about people's foreign aid programs, even though like objectively it's important what you do there. It's not important to Americans' lives. And like you have to get there on immigration. Like this is not an area of political strength for democrats you know what i mean like it's true that like trump's most extreme immigration antics are not popular but like you don't want to go to the american people with like donald trump wants to put america first and democrats want to put honduran asylum seekers first like you need to think about what you're trying to do and why it's good and like explain that the 1325 was like a like a signpost of that right that like when people were embracing this they didn't say i want to decriminalize border crossing because and then like give me some reason why it would make my life better right maybe it's a huge drag on the judicial system's resources like but like come up with something so this is the This is like my totalizing
2: worldview of how politics works. But you were saying earlier that this debate is full of a lot of policy position taking Mm -hmm. and yet people don't care that much about policy, at least not a lot of the distinctions between it. What they do care a lot about is identity. And a lot of the policies that people are taking in this debate are about establishing an identity of some kind or another. And in the Democratic Party right now, being Mm pro-immigrant is a very important part of the democratic identity. And Donald Trump has made it a much more central part of the democratic identity. And so showing that you will take risk and fire on this is a way of establishing like the strength of that identity. Similarly with the Medicare for All stuff, one thing you don't really hear that much in the whole Medicare for All debate is a debate over – well, why? Like what? Like, you could just lower payment rates for everybody to mm-hmm. Medicare levels. Private insurers, like if you talk to healthcare walks, are just like not the biggest deal in the system one way mm-hmm. or the other. Like payment rates are much more important and you have national health systems that do have private insurers and national health systems that don't. And you can do it all kinds of different ways. But it's an identity thing, right? Like I'm somebody who believes. I'm somebody who um, is against. And it's like who are your enemies? What is your group? And so a lot of the things happening in the debate, it seems to me, and this is particularly true on immigration, which is a very deep question of national identity and, like, what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to be a liberal? To your point, they're having a debate that seems curiously disconnected from Americans' material interests. But this is constantly, like, the left-wing refrain, like, why are these debates so disconnected from people's material interests? And it's because people primarily – like, they, they very heavily participate in politics in terms of identity and group status. And these debates are, are are keying in on those motivations more than they are like, a serious discussion of, like, who has the best policy and taking an empirical look at this and given the implementation difficulties, like, what will this do for the country? And, like, I put a little bit of that on the moderators and the way debates right. are structured. They're not built to, like, have that conversation. But but nevertheless, there's a kind of position taking here that is very much about democratic and liberal identities. And just right now, and I think this is also a nature of an unsettled field and a very big field, there is very little thought about the general election. Right. And I think people are just planning to, like,
3: Right, you know, we'll but it, but I mean, it's it's precisely because people vote more on identity than on policy that like this way of talking about immigration worries me. Yeah, because like I, I agree they, with that I think there's like a lot of different approaches to immigration that like can fly with the American public, but that to the typical person. What is non-negotiable is that like your concern yes. as a government has to be with Americans, yes. right? And there's like that could be a million things, and like who's ever heard of Section thirteen? 14? You know, like like you you could do different things, and and but yes, I like they are very keyed in on this. What's interesting to me is that we did not see much talk about trade, right? Because trade is actually an issue in which like Democrats in good standing have like serious like directional disagreements, right? Like they can nitpick each other's healthcare plans like until, you know, the the cows come home. But they're all sort of saying the same thing about healthcare, which is like the government should be more involved and do more to regulate prices and do more to subsidize people's care. Um, Like there are Democrats who believe that uh, free trade is really good, that abandoning the Trans-Pacific Partnership was a mistake, that we should go forward with a TTIP with Europe. And there are Democrats who believe that like NAFTA was a huge error, that letting China into the WTO was a huge error, and that Donald Trump has been like a, like a trade policy faker. And you know, so I have heard the speeches from Warren and Sanders on one side of that debate. I've heard um, – Uh, more pro-trade sentiments from O'Rourke and from Joe Biden, but was not like brought in to the debate at all, even though this is a a subject where there's like not like not like a I'm trying to annoy you by making you pick fights with each other, but where they have like really like sincere directional disagreement about the trajectory of national policy and where it touches on some of these same identity type issues, right? Like one of the theories of Sanders and Warren and like going back before them like of Dick Gephardt, right? Like like one idea Democrats have had is that they should use protectionist trade policy to key in on nationalistic sentiments that Republicans that like George W. Bush used to promote like hawkish foreign policy, right? And then another idea is that like no, like Democrats should promote like – cosmopolitanism as an economic development strategy for the United States, right? And so it's like it's going to appeal to different kinds of people and it has pretty substantial implications, right? Like this is like one of the big ways Trump has turned politics a little bit sideways and it was strange to me to not really discuss it at all. Thankfully, we have a thousand more debates. Ah, the dream, the dream. All right. Well, thanks to everybody out there for listening. Uh, Thanks to Ezra. uh, Thanks to um, Jackson Bierfeld and our producer Jeffrey Geld. And The Weeds will be back on Tuesday.
0: When you surround yourself with the best tech, that's an instant level up. So shouldn't you level up in every room of your house? The NUMI 2.0 is Kohler's most advanced toilet to date, with a sculptural design that elevates it beyond a household object and cutting-edge technology to bring you the finest in personal comfort and cleansing. It offers personalized settings to match your exact preferences, from ambient-colored lighting and a built-in audio speaker system to the heated seat with hands-free opening and closing. It's more than a toilet. It's a work of art. Learn more at Kohler.com.
1: Support for this episode has come from eBay. You know real when you feel it. And with eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you don't have to wonder. You know that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo will be checked by experts and verified authentic. Maybe it's a designer handbag, sneakers that pop, jewelry that shines as bright as you do. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is a real deal